You're going to have to get in line on the Jordan proposal. Like, I think I beat you to that. Okay, well, <laughs> I'm cutting the line. Have you ever been propositioned on a podcast before? Yeah. 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 This is turning weird, but... As you said, Kayvall, this is a day of first. Okay, so <laughs> this is... So, plot twist, Jordan, we actually brought you here to pitch you all of our ideas. This is like Shark yes. Tank, but for... TSA39. Yeah, we're holding him hostage actually. Can we just can we just advance some proposals now that we have you um, hostage? Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash changelog. This episode of JS Party is brought to you by Rollbar. Deploy with confidence more often, spend less time worrying, and more time on improving your code. You can feel safe knowing every error is reported in real time with Rollbar. Check them out at rollbar.com. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. I'm Adam Stachowiak, Editor-in-Chief here at Changelog, and today, K-Ball is joined by ML Hussein and Emma Bostian with special guest Jordan Harban discussing what's happening in TC39 land. Stay tuned to next week's show with special guest Stephanie Mario coming on to talk about creating that content. All right, here we go. Hello, JS Party people, and welcome to this week's JS Party. I'm K-Ball. I will be your MC today, and I am joined by three wonderful people I'm so excited to introduce, especially because I have three firsts going on. So first off, Emma is joining us. This is the first time I'm on a podcast with you since you moved. How's it going, Emma? It's going great. I'm living in a house full of cardboard, uh, Ikea. I literally live in Ikea now, so it's great. Awesome. Next, Amel. First time I'm on an episode with you when you're actually on the team. I think we've interviewed before, but welcome. So excited to have you. Thank you. So excited to be here, uh, K-Ball. And next, we have a super special guest. Jordan Harbrand is joining us to talk about TC39 and what's coming down the pipe. Jordan, how are you doing? Good, thanks. Great to be here. So let's get started by talking a little bit. Jordan, can you kind of introduce yourself and what your role is with TC39? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm Jordan. Like, I, I kind of have two roles, a couple roles on TC39. The primary one is actually just as a delegate, uh, meaning I represent my employer and you know, provide feedback on proposals, champion proposals myself, and attend the meetings, which are six times a year. But the other role that I have is I'm one of the editors of the specification and have been for about two and a half years. At the moment, there's four. Uh, the number has changed. Historically, there was one, and now we have kind of a group of people to help uh, share the workload. Uh, and so the editors are responsible for uh, merging changes into the specification once the committee's agreed on them and you know, can, can make editorial judgment calls about how things are worded. But you know, the semantics are decided by the wider committee. All right. And just in case anyone on our listening crew doesn't know already, TC39, the specification you are editing is? Sorry, yes. Uh, TC39 is the technical committee that writes the specification for JavaScript, the language that runs in web browsers. So 
exceedingly relevant for those of us on JS Party. So let's do just a super quick overview of what the process is and then dive into the fun stuff about what are the things coming down the pipe. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, ever since 2015, ES6, we've been operating under a process where every year we release a new edition of the specification with whatever changes have landed in the interim. Uh, and there's a process for, with multiple stages for proposals to move through in order to land in the language. Uh, so the earliest stage is stage zero, which is you know kind of like, I got this wild idea. Stage one is the committee agrees that this is a problem that we need to explore further. Stage two is that uh, this is a solution. We want to solve the problem and put it in a solution in the language, and we have a pretty good idea of what that solution looks like. Stage three is the solution's pretty much finished, and until it's actually implemented, we can't be, you know, and shipped in browsers and other engines, we can't be, you know, we won't know about any other changes we need to make uh, until that time. And then stage four is when it's finished and lands in the specification. And so with Babel, we can start using these about stage zero, right? So certainly you could, you have the ability to do so, but I phrased those stages very carefully in that the actual solution isn't finalized until stage three. So, or the earlier in the stage process that you use something, the more likely it is to change in a way that will cause a lot of churn and breakage in your code base. So while it's great to experiment with early stage proposals, uh, it's generally a very ill-advised idea to use them in production before stage three. Yeah, thanks for asking that very poignant question, K-Ball, because for me, stage zero is like an idea, right? Stage zero is anybody from the internet can submit a pull request and it's a stage zero proposal, right? So there's there's no kind of barrier to entry. Well, I mean, anyone-ish. Actually, actually, Jordan, could you clarify that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, anyone can write a proposal, but in order to be considered an actual proposal, a TC39 delegate has to champion it, meaning has to put their name to it and agree to kind of drive it through the process uh, and shepherd it. And there can be more than one champion, but there has to be at least one. Uh, and although there's not a strict requirement for stage zero beyond it's got a champion, uh, typically we don't add things to the list uh, in the proposals repo on GitHub until it's both championed and also like at least added onto an agenda, you know, planned to be discussed at the upcoming meeting. Okay, got it. So there is a anybody view, but that anybody view is in the pull requests, like as opposed to the merged items that reflect on the list. Is that correct? Right. Okay, got it. Yeah, and certainly anybody could author a pull request to change something in the specification. But we, we have two categories, two big categories, editorial and normative. Editorial is like you just worded it differently, you spelled some things differently. Uh, normative is where like runtime JavaScript code could observe the difference. And normative changes require committee agreement, committee consensus. And depending on what the change is, you know, we sort of make judgment calls as to whether something needs to be a proposal or just a pull request. What are some of the strangest proposals that have come through? I think that there have been a lot of ideas that people have. I'm hesitant to call out specific ones because I don't want the individuals who came up with them to be discouraged. Oh. Um, but I would say that folks often will have a favorite concept in a different language and will naturally expect that concept to work in JavaScript and will come up with what they think is a good solution to provide that feature without really thinking through all the, the rest of the consequences. And so it might be that the concept is actually great, but that solution is inappropriate for JavaScript. 
but it also could be that that concept is inappropriate for JavaScript. And those discussions are difficult to have without discouraging people from interacting. So like, I, I'm sure I could dredge up specifics, but I don't have anything off the top of my head. I'm curious, how did you become part of the TC39 panel? Sure. So I was maintaining the ES5 shim and ES6 shim back in 2014. I still am, but that was at the time they were basically the primary way anybody polyfilled JavaScript language features, meaning like uh, provided them to an older browser that didn't ship them already. And as a result, I had to kind of pay attention to the specification itself in order to implement those correctly. And one of the maintainers of jQuery actually reached out to me on Twitter and asked if I wanted to attend as a guest. And in that first meeting, I, I was able to like provide, you know, advice that changed the specification. And that like, that was a really good feeling, kind of a, it was very exciting to be able to have made a substantive change to such an important language. And so I kind of caught the bug and uh, immediately started uh, advocating that my, that my company join and send me as a delegate and haven't looked back. This is just a PSA for anyone listening that Twitter is actually a very important networking and marketing tool. So if you're looking to branch out and, you know, join new organizations or get new career opportunities, highly recommend it. Yeah. It's definitely like the millennial marketing tool more, more, more so than LinkedIn. I feel like LinkedIn is for business people and, uh, and know, VC, v, v, VCs and marketers that want to connect with each other. And like <laughs> tw Twitter is how like the rest of us connect and market our and promote our work and interests. But yeah, no, Jordan, like super fascinating insight. You know, I, I think for me, what's really cool about the, like seeing the evolution of this TC39 uh, story is the you know, more and more involvement from like practitioners, I would say. And, you know, there, there's always been, I would say, involvement from implementers. And, and for, for those of you wondering, what are implementers? Implementers are people who work at browsers that like write the C++, C++ code that like the, the JavaScript engines use, right? So those are implementers. And then there's a bunch of like language nerds that are, you know, typically part of these language committees that, you know, very uh, into kind of language design, but maybe more removed from the day-to-day, -day, you know, actual usage of, of that language. Uh, and then you have folks like Jordan who, you know, come from the web developer world that are practitioners, right? So the folks that are actually like using that language. And so what you have is this like triangle of like implementers, language nerds, sorry, I can't come up with a better word for that. And then you have web developers. And I think like the push pull tension between those three groups is like how you have this, like, it has produced this lovely body of work since ECMAScript 2015. And so speaking of body of work, let's get into like talking about what's coming down the pipeline. So K-Ball, should we start with like, do we want to work our way from like idea to serious or do we want to go from serious to like idea? Like, how do we want to do this? Oh, good question. Well, let's take a couple just out of sequence where we just say, like, what are the most interesting to you things happening right now? And then we can do something a little more systematic in the next couple segments. So, Jordan, what's the most interesting proposal of any stage to you right now? Ooh, I have a couple. So one of them is class fields, private and public class fields, which is currently stage three. It's shipped in a couple browsers, so it's hopefully moving to stage four soon, but it's, uh, it is still stage three. Also records and tuples just hit stage three. That's uh, a new or stage two, excuse me. That's a new primitive. Uh, that's kind of like, it's like an immutable object or an immutable array, but it's a primitive. So you can 
compare them with equal signs and it like compares their contents instead of just their identity. So like two objects that have a key A with a value one aren't equal, but two records that have this, those same contents are equal. You know, like Immutable JS and Immer and a few other libraries in this space all are attempting to solve this problem and records and tuples will be a lay in the language to do that. Is it a new built-in essentially? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So for those of you wondering, what's a built-in? Well, we have objects like map and set and number and array that are all built-ins. And so uh, with ECMAScript 6, which is ECMAScript 2015, we have a few new built-ins, I think, but like symbol is an, like another that I can think of as, you know, and so this would be like a new thing as opposed to like an extension of something that's pre-existing. And so I, I'm really curious, like when these new built-ins get added to the language, like what what's the reaction from implementers, right? Because I'm, I keep thinking of uh, JavaScript engines as this like Jenga board of like C like code. And I'm just curious, like what it's like to manage that, you know, be, I, I'm not sure what the coding patterns are in terms of like being able to reuse functionality and, you know, how folks maintain performance benchmarking. Like, you know, I'm an implementer. Somebody wants to me to create a whole new built-in. Like what, what happens? <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, whether it's a like syntax or, you know, a primitive or, you know, API like, like map and set or something, I think that the general sense I get is that the way implementers think about these things is how they might build it in a way where it can be made fast, either immediately or in the future. And uh, in particular, they think about, will this new feature make existing code patterns slower? And that's usually a big no-no. So it's fine if a new thing is slow but it's not fine if a new thing slows down old things. And it's also only fine if a new thing is slow, I think, if they think that it's possible to make it faster in the future. I'm not an implementer, so I'm not 100% sure that's how they approach it, but that's the sense I get from these conversations. And then there's, you know, as you mentioned, there's implementers and sort of language aficionados and practitioners, but all of us have our own kind of opinions and we all use JavaScript in some ways. And so the conversations end up getting really complex because everyone's kind of wearing multiple hats at the same time uh, when they're expressing an opinion. And I just want to clarify too, I think uh, you brought up an interesting point around not wanting to make existing things slower by adding this new feature or mm -hmm. built in. Um, I, I can think of like decorators, you know, that kind of was rejected because of that reason from my understanding. And so, um, can you shed some light on that? Yeah. Um, so for specifically for decorators, it had advanced to stage two and was on its like third or fourth iteration. And it, it asked for stage three. The champions asked for stage three for the proposal and a couple implementers withheld consensus for that advancement. So it wasn't like rejecting the proposal, but basically saying that this, the solution that had been designed, that they couldn't figure out, they were convinced that they, any way they implemented it was going to make all classes slower, not just decorated ones. And that was not something they found acceptable. So you know, the, the decorator's proposal is still a stage two thing. It's like a problem the committee wants to solve in the language, but uh, it's not clear really what the solution is going to look like at the moment. Can we really quick for the two proposals you highlighted, like I think mm -hmm. if for someone who's not living in this space, those sound kind of dry, right? Like, okay, sure. it's this new fundamental attribute. So let's explore a little bit about what that enables. Like, I think you sort of hinted at a little bit talking about Immer, but like, what does having these immutable types enable us to do with JavaScript that we can't do very well right now? 
Yeah, it's uh, essentially fast comparison by content. Everything in JavaScript compares roughly by you know identity. You could argue that primitives compare by contents, like three equals three, right? But there's no way if you have like a complex data structure with uh, like an object or an array, any equality has to you know inefficiently move through every key value pair or every item in the array uh, or every item in the set and so forth in order to do those comparisons. And React, for example, has a bunch of things that they do to do shallow comparisons. And then like when the shallow comparison fails, they just re-render everything. So if, if you're a React developer, you you know may have been familiar with pure components or the use memo, you know, component wrapper, all of which are designed to try and avoid the performance hit from doing deep comparisons of objects. And with records and tuples, then you no longer need to do a deep comparison. You just compare them directly and uh, effectively immediately it'll tell you this is the same thing or this is like this has the same stuff or it doesn't have the same stuff you're right that it's dry a lot of the stuff we do in tc39 is dry it's it's low level capabilities or it's kind of sugar like abstractions better ways to do things simpler ways to do things so you know day to day developers are probably going to get a lot more excited about something like temporal which is a new proposal for, it's stage two right now, for basically providing a much better way to do dates and times than the pretty broken date object we have. Because temporal is something developers are going to use directly, whereas records and tuples, they may or may not use them directly. But they're going to make the web faster for everyone using React, which I'm pretty excited about. Potentially, yeah. And I'm hesitant to claim that it will definitely make React faster. But either way, there's a lot of libraries that will be able to use them under the hood in order to make the web faster, even if you're not using them directly. That makes a lot of sense. I, I think for me, what's what's really interesting about this is built-ins. Um, for those of you who use Babel, which is probably the majority of you, Babel helps us like create transforms or polyfills. And for things like built-ins, what Babel does is it'll, it'll you, you need a polyfill, right? Because there's no kind of like one-to-one mapping, right? It's not syntactic sugar or whatever. It's not an extension of, of something. So I would imagine that the polyfill for tuples, records and tuples, is probably really simple. And so for those of you who maybe want to, like, get a little bit of uh, under-the-hood kind of exposure to some of these language specifications, I would highly recommend uh, looking at the polyfills because those are written in JavaScript. Um, and uh, usually they're fairly easy to follow along, so... Awesome. I mean, yeah, the, the way I became more familiar with the spec was definitely like looking at the polyfill code for a specific function that I like I, where I knew how it worked. So I looked at how it was built. That helps a lot. So that's, I think that's really good advice. Yeah. Well, well thank you, Mr. Jordan. And um, I, I just learned today that you were Mr. Babel before Babel, like uh, if anyone didn't catch that, in the sense that you were creating these shims oh. before things like and, you know, and polyfills before Babel was a thing before build tools became the thing. And so it's really, I didn't know that you had this cool callback story, Jordan. To be like, clear, I didn't even, <laughs> I didn't create them. I mainly just took them over and like, okay. uh, became the maintainer of them. Okay, got it. These have been things the web have been using for a while. Okay, cool. Yeah, I was going to say the typical open source hero hero story of like, like maintainer gets burnt out, new maintainer takes over and like, you know, <laughs> does the shepherding. All right, so let's now take a quick break. And we'll be back shortly to talk a little bit more specifics about what's going to happen in the next year coming out of TC39.
This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean, Droplets, Managed Kubernetes, Managed Databases, Spaces, Object Storage, Volume Block Storage, Advanced Networking Link, Virtual Private Clouds and Cloud Firewalls, Developer Tooling with a Robust API and CLI to make sure you can interact with your infrastructure the way you want to. DigitalOcean is designed for developers and built for businesses. Join over 150,000 businesses that develop, manage, and scale their applications with DigitalOcean. Head to do.co slash changelog to get started with a $100 credit. Again, do.co slash changelog. Let's get back to it. Emma was saying that for her proposals really reminded her of something a little different than TC39. Emma, do you want to take us into this? So really my favorite proposal that I've ever seen was the one on The Bachelor. Uh, And my favorite ones are the ones where they get rejected. Rejections are not fun if you're the person being rejected, but um, they're interesting for the onlooker. So I'm curious. Why would a proposal in TC39 get rejected? Like, give us all the dirty details. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I've had a number of proposals rejected. TC39. <laughs> I had one that I tried to get advancement like la- at the last meeting, and it got blocked. So it's, uh, it happens a lot. I think that it kind of depends on what kind of proposal it is. Like, when there's for something that's, that's really foundational for the language, and it's kind of, it'll change a lot of stuff, it'll be a really big deal, then people are a lot more nervous about advancing it and want to be a lot more confident about the consequences before they do, you know, before they move it on. Whereas, you know, something simple, you know, it, it's, it's a lot tougher to come up with a good reason not to move it forward. So like uh, one of the proposals that went, one of my proposals that went well was like object dot values and object dot entries. And those were relatively straightforward. We already had object dot keys, keys, values and entries were already concepts. Like it kind of, there were a bunch of libraries uh, in the ecosystem that already did this stuff. So there weren't that many reasons to reject that proposal. You know, they were just kind of, people would massage the shape of it. You know, they had like bike shed type opinions. But then like, I had another proposal that was like error.isError, like array.isarray. Just, you know, I wanted a way to determine that something was an error reliably. <laughs> okay. That sounds super duh, though. Could you talk like error yeah. dot is error? Like I feel yeah, like that t- is like. What's your thought process behind that? <laughs> Smush. Yeah. Error dot is error. Yeah. Ex- explain, <laughs> please. Essentially, there's the concept. If you're familiar with iframes, how you can have like a different array constructor in an iframe than you can in the regular web page. Those are called realms. And so, if you want to, you can't use instance of array to determine if an array from an iframe is an array or not because it's a different array constructor. So you have to use the array.isArray function to tell you if something's really an array or not. And similarly, there isn't any cross-realm way to say something's an error. You can only say instance of error, and that doesn't work if it's from like an iframe. So realms, for anyone who doesn't know what realms are, realms are like different environments within the browser. You can kind of think about it that way. So like service workers like its own kind of environment realm where web worker is iframes are right so when you're like in a browser you know your main document is like the main realm and and each of these realms has a different this instance 
Um, and I think we can get into like talking about this in a little bit because Jordan is the one who proposed uh, global this, which is a thing we can discuss in a bit. So realms are like these these spaces, right? So like these con different contexts. And so now that we kind of know what realms are, could you explain again? What is all this like instance and reference checking that it doesn't equate? Like I'm not clear on why that happens. Like, could you explain? So if you do two square brackets, that makes an array and that has a dot constructor property, right? And then that array's dot constructor property is going to be the array, capital A array function. But if you do the, the square brackets inside an iframe and also do it on the main part of the web page and you try and like do triple equals with those constructors, that's not going to be equal. They're different constructors. Those two array functions are different. For, yeah, I know that makes sense. Yeah. I would understand that to be different because mm -hmm. they have their different objects in memory, though. That's right? exactly right. Okay. But I'm just saying, why is that a realm issue versus like a, like, I just create array one, array two, and I say, is array one and array two equal? Like, I would expect to like, no. No, I think we're trying to figure out the class, right? Like, is this yeah. an array that I can work with? What kind of thing is it? Yeah, what type of thing I is see, it? I see, I see. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. And so, if, there, if you want to know that if somebody gives you a value and you don't know what it is, and you want to figure out what kind of thing it is, and right. you want to see if it's an array, array dot is array is the only way to do that. Like that's always correct. Yeah. Well, I'm just curious though. If if I somebody passes me a null value or a symbol, and I try to call is array or is error on that. No, I think it's a class method, right? So it's a it's a method on the array class. Yeah, it's a static method. Correct. Yeah, no, I'm just, I'm just saying that though, would I, I would just get an error saying like property is, property is not there. It would return false. No, no, no. You'd pass in your value, right? So you're not calling object dot is array. You're calling array dot is array pass object. Ah, okay. Go, got it, got it, got it. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm spacing out on the API. So yeah, the API is you, you pass it the thing. Okay, got it. I'm going to propose to Jordan right now because look, I really want a class. I'm not getting down on one knee because I'm too tired. You're going to have to get in line on the Jordan proposal. Like, I think I beat you to that. Okay, well, <laughs> I'm cutting the line. Have you ever been propositioned on a podcast before? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is turning weird, but... As you said, Kayvall, this is a day of first. Okay, so, <laughs> this is... So plot twist, Jordan, we actually brought you here to pitch you all of our ideas. This is like Shark yes. Tank, but for TSA 39. Yeah, we're holding him hostage, actually. Can we just, can we just advance some proposals now that we have you um, hostage? Okay, so I know we've got array.isarray. I want array dot, why is my array not an array? Tell me where it went wrong. <laughs> I actually have an NPM package called is-equal, where oh, you can gee. pass it two things. Uh, and there's a there's a, a Y function in it. You can pass it two things, and it'll give you some text that tells you why they're different. If that's helpful. Oh, close, close. Okay. Yeah, and that is the classic definition of like the one line <laughs> package, right? Like that is the left pad of JavaScript that is in many way ways. Way more than one line, but yeah. Oh, oh uh, it is. Okay. Well, you know, I feel like I could write that in one line, Jordan. Shame on you. Challenge <laughs> just accepted. Kidding. Pull requests open. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> no, just kidding. Actually speaking, I've just t take a tangent on, on module design. You know, I, I think, um, what's his, is it Sundoris? I never know how to pronounce his name. Like the, I, like the cool dinosaur guy who has like every single package on NPM. Like what's his name? I don't know how to pronounce it out loud either. Yeah. Okay. So I'm happy that this is a universally shared problem. K-Ball, do you know? I feel like I don't even know, know who you're talking about. Oh, you know who I'm talking about. Sindoris. I, I okay. usually read it Sindoris. as Sindersaurus, but I have no idea if that's right. All right. Well, Sinders, 
Cindersaur. Somebody correct us. Somebody tweet us the video <laughs> or like the uh, correct pronunciation of his name. Cindersaur. Oh, um, that yeah, guy. That I did person. not recognize yes. it from your name of him. How, how would you read that in your head? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, so Cindersaurus said this one time, he's actually like kind of a, a fountain of knowledge, but he said that like for, for him, it doesn't really matter like whether a module is one line or a thousand lines in the sense that like it abstracts away some behavior. Right. And so ultimately, like when, you, you know, so lines of code is not necessarily a useful metric to judge a package by. I would say dependencies is, though, for me, like when I'm when I'm always picking packages, I'm like, how many dependencies do you have? Because ultimately, like all those dependencies become your problem as soon as you like, you know, import this into your into your app in the sense that like you might have peer dependency issue conflicts, downstream like security issues. So just just a tangent there on like picking modules, like don't judge the lines of code. So basically, yeah. Well, and you mentioned left pad. While that happened, I was actually in the like middle of proposing string.prototype.pad start and pad end, which were stage two at the time. And it was very amusing to me that almost every Hacker News comment that said, Psh, that's just a one-line thing, they all wrote it wrong. Every one of them had bugs. So even a one-line change is often, can often be very difficult to write correctly. And so there's a lot of value in having... Uh, a separately well-tested, well-used package to abstract that away. I don't think anyone who's ever worked with a regular expression would doubt you on that. <laughs> so I really want to know what this syndrome is called. When you vehemently believe that something is part of this TC39 spec and it is not. Because today I had one of those moments where you're working and I'm like, all right, we need to check if our array is empty. Array is empty. It's definitely on there. I know it is. I know I can just check that length is zero, but I was 99% sure that that existed and it didn't. So like, what is that called? Like we've got to come up with some name because I'm not the only one that's experienced this. I mean, it might be the same phenomenon as remembering how to spell Berenstein Bears. Uh, Dunning or Kruger? Dunning, I don't know how to say that. <laughs> but it's, there's a, a meme out there that it's a parallel universe thing. So maybe, it's yeah. not, maybe it really existed in the universe you're from. Yeah, the Berenstein <laughs> versus Berenstein. Yeah. My kids are really into Berenstein Bears right now. But I always Aww. thought it was Berenstein. Hmm. That's super cool. They also have like, they are not internally consistent. I've been reading a lot of them now, right? Like they reference their honeymoon location like five times differently in different books. So I think uh, this sort of, I think it's there, but it's not there. It's not unique to TC39. <laughs> so Jordan, do you want to tell us about Global This since we talked about realms? Sure. Like what stage is that in? And also from my understanding, the, the whole, there was this kind of hoopla around the name itself. And maybe can you shed some light on like how hard it is like, to name things when you're writing job, like the ECMAScript specs, because, because like there's only a limited number of keys on a keyboard and there's a lot of stuff that's already taken. And like, how does that, how does that work? Well, so the proposal itself was basically uh, the, the global, the, there wasn't a, a way in the language, a universal way to reference it. So browsers had window, node had global, um, other engines had, you know, nothing or something different. And so this was a proposal to come up with a single way to, to reference it, right? Just pick a spelling and let's all agree that this is the magic word that references the global object. We're done. Um, the challenge in naming it was twofold. Uh, the first was that I started out just calling it global and then we shipped it and then it broke Flickr. Wait, fl Flickr is still a thing. 
Flickr.com. This was well at the time that we shipped it in like 2017 or something. It, it very much was. Oh wow! I haven't been to it. Recently. Okay, I'm sure. I'm sure it's still a thing. The web has but a long. But it was arc, using yeah. an old version of Moment that was compiled with a in-house concat, you know, bundler tool, and just the way that it did that ended up breaking when global was a variable that already existed, which sucked. But also, you know, it meant that that name was just kind of not an option because one thing that is the most important part of TC39 is do not break the web. So anything that causes, you know, any noticeable number of websites to break is just not something browsers are going to want to ship. And so it's not something we put in the specification. So then I had to come up with a new name and that there was a lot of bike sheds. Um, you know, there was a lot of ideas thrown out and what I ended up doing was asking another browser to gather data about which ones were already in use, basically trying in advance to see which names would work. And I came up with like 30 names and the response was, that's too many, give us like five. And so I, I put global on there as a control. And then I put a few others, uh, including global this, which is the name it ended up having. And you know, looked at the, the the number of websites using it, and the result was that Global Bits was the safest option. Mm -hmm. It was like the the name that nobody else thought of because it was so bad. Like nobody used it. Like it was available. Yeah. Like those those crappy domain names. If you want to <laughs> add new keywords, you got to pick words that nobody would ever think to use. Exactly. <laughs> yep. That's exactly right, Cable. Yeah. So there's. I mean, there were a lot of there was a lot of reaction. Like basically the name, that name global, this was approved by the committee and we went forward with it. And about two months later, a couple of folks with large Twitter followings noticed it. And a bunch of people showed up on the repo with their, you know, very angry that the name that we chose wasn't one that they liked and with different ideas. And so what finally ended up relaxing it was another committee member, uh, Yulia, uh, who works at Mozilla, she helped me write a naming document that was basically a bunch of constraints, like musts and shoulds and must nots and should nots. And for each constraint, it explained what it was and why it existed. And then for each one, it said, these are the names that this, this allows. These are the names that are still okay with this constraint. And after you're done reading through that document, it turns out it's pretty difficult to still disagree with the name. You can dislike it, of course, but like it becomes apparent why it was one of the only options. And that was really helpful. And I'm I want to do that for future for any anything I do that's contentious around proposals in the future because that changed what was a very like nightmarish couple weeks of GitHub notifications for me into like a very manageable calm thing. Like a streamlined, yeah. I gotta say, I've been doing a lot of thinking around change management and like and like nerd herding and like what the most efficient way to do that is. And I think that strategy that you took is really cool. We'll link that document uh, that you created in the show notes so folks can take a look at it as well. But yeah, that's super neat. And did that document also lead to Smoosh? Oh. So I don't remember the exact order in which these happened, but Smoosh was because the original <laughs> name for array.prototype.flat was array.prototype.flatten. And that, it turns out that a library called Mootools had used that word. And so it would break websites if arrays started having a flatten method. And one of the champions or the champion for that proposal posted a, I, I think mostly joking GitHub issue saying that he was going to rename it from flatten to smoosh. And 
a lot of folks took it very seriously. And some folks even tried to create a campaign to like make it web incompatible to name it smoosh. Like they tried to make it so that some websites would break if arrays started having smoosh. And yeah. I thought that was a little taking it too far though. Like I thought that was like not nice. It was like people trying to actively start a guerrilla campaign to like uh, jeopardize the success of this proposal. Like, you know, even though it was was a joke to begin with, like, but like most people didn't know that it was a joke and then like it just got out of hand really fast and it's just like WTF. Wait, wait, wait. People were deliberately being mean on the internet. Oh yeah. That never Um, happens. Never. Developers are the nicest people. (laughs) With that, let's take another quick break and we'll come back and talk a little bit more about some of the wild stuff that's way down still in stage one and zero. What up, JS Party people? It's your boy here, Adam Stachowiak, and I have a question for you. Are you having trouble uncovering performance issues in your Node.js apps? If so, check out our friends at Scout APM. That's scoutapm.com slash changelog. Scout is application monitoring that automatically reports key Node.js monitoring metrics, instruments many Node.js libraries automatically, detects easy to miss M plus one queries that sneak into production, plus a ton more. And of course, Scout is easy to install via NPM package. Learn more and get started for free at scoutapm.com slash changelog. No credit cards required. That's scoutapm.com slash changelog. So Jordan, yeah, let's talk about date time in JavaScript. So <laughs> dates, times, time zones, they're the things that have been known to, to break a man, you know? <laughs> so I'm yeah, just, un- yeah, unfortunately, the, the JavaScript date object is not great. There's a lot of things about it that are underspecified, meaning browsers do things slightly differently. It's always in local time, so you can't represent a time in a different time zone. And it's really easy to screw up the math, but the time zone math as you're trying to make those adjustments. And you can't have a date without a time. You can't have a time without a date. Like I broke a date picker or a, a date picker I, I built broke one time because uh, <laughs> we picked midnight as the just placeholder time, right? Yeah. For, for the dates. And in Brazil, once a year, Midnight doesn't exist because their daylight savings time advances at midnight to <laughs> 2 a.m. So in Brazil, the, a date picker on Twitter, like Twitter.com, br- uh, broke because of JavaScript date object. And this stuff happens all the time. Um, what did Brazil do during Y2K? Like, did they, were they like extra freaked out because they were like, we also, in addition to like, you know, like, we also have a weird edge case with the way we do time in Brazil. And it's, and it's, I mean, almost anything you can think of that, you know, like there's a, there's a great article called falsehoods programmers believe about names. And it's like a hundred things that many of us take for granted that that's the way names work. And in fact, that's not. And it's, there's a, if someone were to make that list about uh, dates, times and time zones, it would probably be much, much longer. There's just so many, like almost everything is an edge case. There's really no mm-hmm. standard for a lot of the stuff. Right. So luckily there's a stage two proposal called temporal that's attempting to address this. 
And mm -hmm. some of its champions actually are maintainers of Moment.js, which is one of the libraries that has solved this the best in the ecosystem so far. Actually, can we take a moment yeah. to thank Moment.js and like folks like Maggie and Phil, Maggie Pint from Microsoft, Philip Dunkel from Bloomberg. And Matt, yeah. And then, yeah, Matt Johnson. Uh, I'm mm -hmm. not sure where Matt Johnson works, but like Moment.js is like, totally smoothed over a lot of the headaches that used to be things that everyone had to do on their own and like do imperfectly. And so this is kind of like a really great example of like web developers taking complex, like complexity and like abstracting it away into like a smooth API and, you know, dealing with the, the, the interop issues as well. Like, you know, in addition to like the, the complexities around, around daytime. So what's really interesting is like folks from moment are like, let's like, okay, cool. We've learned a lot writing moment. Now let's take moment and like put it in the browser. Right. So this is like a really good example of like web developers making the cow paths, you know, like innovating on the web with libraries and then eventually abstracting that behavior back into the platform so that we can no longer have to use moment. And so moment is now like in just full maintenance mode, you know, there are no new features or anything still works fine. But the goal is like, we, we're going to have this natively in the browser with temporal, which we're going to hear about from Jordan in a second, which is really, really good. Because yeah. while I love moment, my bundle size does not right. T totally moment is huge. The thing is massive. <laughs> Yeah, I couldn't agree yeah. with you more. Um, the other thing is, you know, promises is, are another really good example of like web developers like innovating hard on the web and then coming up with a standard A plus promise kind of spec and then having that actually be what drove forward the language spec as well. And so web developers like are, you know, a huge like innovating freely without the constraints of like the standards world is like a huge like it's something we should never take for granted, right? Like we should always have web developers doing crazy things and creating lots of libraries and solving lots of problems. Because eventually one of those is going to stick and solve a really hard problem for the web and then eventually hopefully be abstracted away into the platform. And so they're like a really key part of like innovation on the platform. And I just don't think we like give credit enough to like folks who write libraries that solve hard problems for us. I'm done with my soliloquy now. <laughs> No, it is perfect. And the other great thing is that one of the bigger complaints folks still have about Moment.js besides bundle size is that it's stateful and mutable, right? Like a given moment object. What does that mean? What could you tell us? Like, could you break that down? Yeah, sure. So you can, when you make a moment object, if you then want to like make it be last week or next year or something, you have to change that object, just like JavaScript state object. Instead of, there's not a clean, easy way to like make a new one or you have to remember to do it, right? Like moment has a dot clone method. And what that means is it could be easy to have bugs from accidentally changing an object in one place that you're relying on not being changed in another place. So one of the things that temporal is gonna do is not suffer from that problem. So once you've created a temporal object, there's lots of ways to easily spit off a brand new temporal object that's changed, right? Like, so you can get a new temporal object that's for last week but it won't let you change the original object. So it kind of sidesteps a lot of that whole class of problems. We've been talking a lot about temporal, temporal, temporal. Let's just take a few steps back for our listeners. What is temporal? And then let's talk a little bit about the specifics for like of the API and what are the enormous goals that they have? Yeah. I think there's also some opportunities if I remember. I was at a TC39 meeting like this time last year in Berlin and 
if I remember like there were some really cool things that folks from Apple were proposing around modules. You know what I'm talking about, right? Built-in modules. Like built-in modules. And like that could potentially actually be something that temporal leveraged. Sorry to get in the weeds, but I, I think this is like, a, I'll be quick about this. Uh, um, but basically built-in modules, there, there's a proposal out there to like um, have built-in modules so that like JavaScript engines don't have to like have every single feature in the language that they can just kind of do this like on-demand thing that we do in JavaScript where we like import something. And so the idea here is like something that does date time. Like we don't have to like load every JavaScript engine with like all of the date time, like um, translations, you know, even for internationalization, like the idea is we can just do like an in on just in time kind of loading, a loading. So I, I thought that was like a really cool thing where Temporal actually was like, hey, let's maybe slow down because maybe we can release using modules and stuff like that. Well, so, so that's actually browsers already do that for globals. So the built in okay. modules isn't necessary for that optimization. Um, oh, okay. Good to know. So, and, and then separately, built in modules has a lot of obstacles. So the temporal proposal decided not to try and install itself, like lock itself on that. So at the mm -hmm. moment, it's going to supply a global temporal namespace that contains a couple different types. So I mean, it's stage two, and so the names are changing a little bit, and I don't have them all in my head. But one of them is called, currently called absolute, and so it, it represents like a fixed point in time, like unrelated to location or like which calendar system you're using. Then there's another one called a date time, which is like a calendar date and then like wall clock time, like, you know, in a specific location in a specific time zone, right? And then there's a time object, which is just the, the wall clock time. So if you need to say, this is a meeting, you know, or, you know, the, I don't know, I wake up every day at 7 a.m. You don't need a date to represent that. You just need a time. That's the object for that. And similarly, there's a date object where it's like, my birthday is the same date every year. I don't care what time it is. It's that date. And then there's a few other types, like there's one called year month and month day. So a birthday is actually more of a month day because it happens every year. And a year month could be pretty much anything that happens monthly. It doesn't matter which day it happens on. Like if you, if you got paid monthly, you could use year month for that and so on. Uh, and then there's also a time zone and a calendar object. So it's kind of to help manage all the complexity around that stuff, which is also part of the reason why moment is so large because of all the time zone and calendar information it has to hold. So the, the built-in modules question was, well, because, you know, we don't want to stick seven or eight new globals, you know, and it's a little, it's, a, you know, we'd rather not have a, a namespace to hold them. So maybe we can do it as a built-in module, but the performance and functionality for the users is going to be the same either way. So at the moment it's proceeding as a, just a regular global, like all the other built-in stuff in JavaScript. And given it's Stage two, what do you think the likely timeline is looking like? Because like some of us are salivating to get to this stuff, but we know from Amel that we shouldn't use it yet. Yes, right, exactly. Right. <laughs> uh, please, please don't use it yet. Experiment, but don't ship it to the actual web. They just did an update in the last meeting, and their current plan, uh, as I understand it, is that by the September meeting, they are hoping to have it finalized, meaning they're going to get to a point where they stop changing the spec a lot. And then... Hopefully by the November meeting, that will have been enough time for the official, they like to select the designated reviewers for the proposal, as well as the editors to review it all. And then after it's been reviewed, it will be eligible for stage three if the committee agrees. So the optimistic timeline then is that it might get stage three in November. But, you know, that, re that requires that there be sufficient review time, that there not be major changes coming out of that, and also that the committee agrees to it at stage three. But yeah, uh, once it's stage three, browsers start shipping it. So 
Yeah, um, super cool. And yeah. and this is kind of one of those features that has been in the pipeline probably pretty long, right? Yeah, like a number of years. This, this, a number of years, yeah. So, I mean, it took took a while to get this right. And it's nice to see that it's finally getting to a stage of maturity and a graduation time, you know? I feel like... Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's like stage two is middle school and like stage three is high school, you know, <laughs> like stage four and above is like, I'm done. I'm an adult now. Like, you know, so it's like really nice to see that arc. And I'm I'm friends with some of the folks that are championing it and, and authoring it. So I'm like really happy that this is uh, something that they get to like make a dent on and make a huge difference for the web, like not just in yeah. terms of like simplifying the API design and abstracting it into the platform, but to kind of go back to K-Ball's point, like we're also saving bytes and bytes matter just even from like a resource perspective, that's like less trees that we're burning or that's less energy that we're using. And it's, it's, it's a big deal. So. Hey, with moment, it's like tens or hundreds of kilobytes, not just bytes. Yeah. It takes a lot of complex bundler configuration to, to bypass that problem. <laughs> yeah. So, this has been fun, Jordan. I think we've learned a lot and we've learned about some of the interesting stuff coming in. We've gotten some on-air proposals and all sorts of fun stuff. <laughs> I think uh, with that, we're going to wrap up for now. But thank you for joining us, Jordan. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Amel. Thank you, Emma. And we'll catch you next time, next week, next party. This is K-Ball signing out. Did you hear? We are launching a membership program. It's called Changelog++ and we think it'll be super cool. Join the club for 10 bucks a month or $100 a year. And if you move fast, you can get in for just six bucks a month or $60 a year. That discount ends on September 1st. So join today to support our work, get closer to the metal and make the ads disappear. Learn more at changelog.com slash plus plus. Once again, that's changelog.com slash plus plus. JS Party is brought to you by amazing sponsors. Thanks again to Fastly, Linode, and Rollbar for their continued support. And our beats are produced by the one and only Breakmaster Cylinder. That's all for now. We'll talk to you again next week. Mm -hmm.